Hey everybody, before I get started, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the passing of my next guest episode, Gallagher. He made a big impact on my life and my career, and he was a really, really misunderstood, brilliant man who said the things the way he wanted to say them off stage. And oftentimes, it got him in trouble and created animosity between him and his fellow peers. But at the end of the day, as you'll see by listening to him, I think he has a lot to offer and a lot of interesting points, whether you agree with them or disagree with them. He was certainly one of the most unique characters of the game. And I will miss him. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I say to myself, well, God, I've got to go do something significant. I, I'm not going to tell this doctor just saved my life. Oh, great. There was a couple of episodes of Law and Order I didn't see, and I'm going to lay on my butt and watch them. No, I have to do it. And that's why I came to talk to you. I have so many things on my bucket list. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you knew how difficult it is to get this guy to do a podcast of this ilk, you wouldn't believe it. But I am honored by the fact that not only did he agree to do this podcast, but he flew in here from the prairie to be here. Literally, as he said, he looked out the back door of the comedy venue that he was at and it was the prairie tumbleweeds and whatever flew here got here early in the morning waited a long time which i was so honored that he did because i couldn't be here early and he's here today and i'm going to give him the proper introduction now leo gallagher jr otherwise known as gallagher is one of the most successful and recognizable stand-up comedians of all time He was born in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and grew up in Lorain, Ohio. He was a championship roller skater practicing at his father's roller rink. 
and he graduated from the University of Southern Florida with a degree in chemical engineering. How many comedians you know who studied and passed and graduated and got a degree in chemical engineering and a minor in English literature, which will qualify you to drive any cab in New York City? Once serving as a road manager for the 60s rock group Seals and Croft, he got his start in comedy as the road manager for Jim Stafford, a very funny musical comedian who we'll talk about later. The pair traveled to California in 1969 where Gallagher began to perform on his own. He honed his comedy act at different places, but he did perform a little bit at the comedy store in the Ice House, which we'll talk about later. His pioneering act is a blend of English wordplay and the mockery of language combined with iconic physical prop comedy. His sketch pitching the sledge-o-matic during which he smashes a variety of food items culminating in a watermelon is one of the most popular and recognizable comedy bits of all time. In 1980, he opened for Kenny Rogers for a hundred shows and went on to be the number one earning comic from 1980 through the majority of the 90s, largely due to his rigorous touring schedule He has had 14 television specials, as I said, on Showtime, which are rebroadcast regularly on Comedy Central. He ran as an independent candidate for governor of California in 2003. He owns several patents for original inventions. He's appeared on The Tonight Show numerous times. The producer of Silence of the Lambs lived in one of his houses and was behind on his rent when he watched him accept an Oscar. Tom Snyder kicked him out of his Christmas party after he was bummed from The Tonight Show by Bob Hope in the adjoining studio. He apologized on air later when he wanted him to be a guest on the radio show. Ratso Rizzo had him read for a part when he saw him get emotional on the news when he was being sued. And Tom Hanks told him he liked what he did. And finally, Richard Pryor and him did coke on Richard Pryor's desk. One of the greatest comedians. Please welcome my guest today, the man, the myth, the legend, the iconic Gallagher. Thank you and good night. (laughs) That was the longest thing ever. You know what I liked about running for governor was I just did it because you could get a lot of publicity and... I had two ideas. I wanted to use helicopters to clear the freeways, and I wanted to sing the national anthem in Spanish. And I wanted everybody to, you know, deal with that. And I thought I'd be on some panel and I'd get to talk about it, but I never did. But I started something that 100 people then did after me. When I did it, there was only about eight or nine candidates against him. Uh, But at the end, it was 120-some. And how did you do? I got um, 14th, 15th. But I got third in some of the mountain counties where they grow dope that border with Nevada. Those are my people. I'm stoned in all my shows. Every one of my shows, I would always think to myself, well, all these Showtime executives are here and I've got all these expensive uh, trucks. I always use the B format truck that the Osmonds use that have beautiful color and everything. And Riesenberger lighting. I just spend the money. I spent it all. Every bit they gave me from Showtime I spent on the show. And um, I thought, well. I really didn't practice straight. So what if I'm not funny, uh, you know, straight? There's no sense in taking a risk now. And so I'm stoned. Uh, Are you stoned now? No, I couldn't find anything. That's too bad. This is going to be a really shitty interview then. (laughs) Uh, I'm curious. Was there ever a great show that you had 
sober. Yeah, there's plenty of times when I don't uh, score. I have to score from the airport. I throw a lot of dope away at the airport because, you know, I don't want to get caught going through. So whatever's left over, I have to throw away. What have you thrown out more, bottles of water or dope at the airport? I never drank water from a bottle. You gave me one. I'm an old man. We don't drink from a bottle. That's why there's so much plastic because people are drinking water out of plastic bottles. Do you want my glass of water here? I really, I promise you, I don't don't have that many germs. Yeah, that's what irritates me is these comedians that have to have a stool and water on the stool. If it's in the picture, it has to be funny. It has to be relevant. If the eye sees it all of the time, it's taking the attention away from you, the face, the body, the communicating. I hate it. You know, George Burns was 100 years old and sucked on a cigar and didn't need to hydrate during the show. What is this? And now, now they, you know, it becomes more. Now they got tea there and they're, you know, and crumpets and cookies. And it's ridiculous. And then they, I hate when a comic turns the cap slowly and takes a drink on a big lap and puts the cap back on. These comics these days never tell enough jokes in a row that are good to know what it is to roll. They never do. As soon as they get a good laugh, they fart around with the water and let it drop. See, it's comedy is like a balloon you got to keep in the air. Telling a good joke is a real problem because what do you follow it with? Are you going to quit and start over or are you going to stay up there at a high level? You don't follow a, an A joke with like a C joke. You might as well just start over from, you know, who was really good? George uh, Carlin. And I mean, uh, Richard Pryor. If you listen to Richard's um, albums, he'll start a premise. And then start hitting you with punchlines, and then he would become a person in the scene. This is how he would develop it. And then, and that moves so quickly because a lot of it, there were no words, and that moves really fast when you can get a laugh with gesture. He was a master. He was, he was the best comic I ever saw. And uh, Tell me somebody who you believe is a really great comic that it, at least he's doing the kind of material and the way that you believe it should be done, but he's relevant now. Is there somebody out there that you look at and you have enormous respect for that's doing comedy now that's doing the closest to how you believe a great comic should do it? Well, um, I don't believe that your comedy has to match your personality. And uh, my personality is very outgoing and, and ebullient and loud and rude. And, you know, so I wouldn't say that, uh, say, some of the girl comics should act that way. And some of the guy comics, uh, it doesn't fit them. Like that little French guy uh, with, the, with the easel. I kind of like his visual um I can't remember names. I've had four heart attacks that corrupt your hard drive. Um, Dimitri Martin? Yeah, Dimitri Martin. I love Dimitri Martin. He's very smart. And he started doing straight stand-up in the beginning, and that's all he did. And then he changed and he incorporated. You can't do a state fair. Here's what the point is. Do you want to stay in a comedy club your whole life, or do you want to get discovered and do a state fair? State fairs pay $10,000, $15,000, $20,000 like this. You want to fart around and work all week 
to get 7000 in a comedy club. Because if you stay in comedy clubs, that's what you end up with. And that's why I think I was different uh, than everybody, was that I had gone around with Jim Stafford, and I saw big audiences. So tell our audience what kind of act Jim Stafford was. Well, he's a guitar player. But? And then he tells jokes. And Since when have you ever been a politician? Well, uh, he's listening, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? Well, he discovered me as I discovered him. We were both in this club in Clearwater, Florida, and, you know, he had to discover me to value me. I was a chemist. I came up to him after his set, and I said, I think I could fix some of your jokes. And he says, are you a, a comedy writer? And I said, no, I'm a chemist uh, for Kaiser Aluminum. And he says, well, you know, what do you know? And I said, well, let me tell you a couple of the jokes. And he was doing a George Carlin joke. He said, uh, I'm a Presbyterian. We worship Frisbees. We believe when you die, your soul goes to a garage in Santa Monica. <laughs> well, that's not funny. Why that's, am I laughing? Because <laughs> you're an easy audience. <laughs> no, the funny thing is it, your soul goes up on the roof and you can't get it down. You have to use something that is Frisbee-like. for that. You see, it's got to be. And um, so anyway. So how did you rewrite the joke? I told him that. I said, uh, your soul goes up on the roof and you can't get it down. That's, okay. what, we, that's what the Presbyterian believes. And so uh, he says, you want to go to my room and smoke dope? And I did. And we, I stayed with him for five years. At one point, Bruce Springsteen opened for Jim in New Jersey. That's incredible. We got stoned. He started uh, playing his guitar. And I said, what if a little man lived inside your guitar? And when you start beating on it, he gets upset and walks up the stairs and turns on the light and a door opens and he complains. And he said, well, can you build that? And I said, yeah. And so I built a bunch of stuff inside a guitar. And then later on, when we split up, I said, can I do that all in a hat? And so I had all these contraptions. I love this saw comes out the top and saws down the side. That was the biggest laugh in the guitar. So this one Christmas, I was all ready to do the night before Christmas and upstairs in my hat, a leprechaun is sleeping. I don't expect you to believe. A whole poem with all these little gadgets. And Bob Hope decided and then he wanted to promote his Bob Hope Christmas special, and they booted me off the show. And, oh, God, I thought I was going to be famous right before Christmas. I'm doing my elf guy in the hat. It's going to kill. And instead, nothing. So I wander next door, and that's where Bob uh, Snyder, Tom Snyder's having his Christmas party. And I say to him, Tom, I think I'm the kind of guy that you'd like to have on your show. And he bellowed, your ruining my Christmas party and shunned me and I had to walk out. So I was, I thought, what a bunch of uh, negative. I went home to my little apartment. You know, I had to steal a car from Jim. When we split up, he wasn't going to let me have the car. <laughs> you stole the car from him? Well, I had to. You can't live in L.A. without a car. And so I took the car. I had an argument with his girlfriend. She kicked me out and he didn't do anything about it. But anyway, I got the... The, the comeuppance is that um, later on, they the writers for his summer show didn't write enough scripts. They needed nine, I think. They wrote three. He had to call me up and ask me to come back and write his show. I told him, well, only if I become a member of the Writers Guild. And that way, when I'm unemployed, I get unemployment. So that was a good... Everybody lets you down. Now, for those of you who don't know, Jim Stafford, probably the most famous for was a song called I Don't Like Spiders and Snakes. 
a very famous song that made millions of dollars and sold millions of records. It sold two million records, and the hook was written by the Bellamy Brothers. I fixed the reel-to-reel tape machine so they could play the demo that night. It was slipping. I had to go find an Allen wrench at the at the hardware store. We come back, and his producer, who has was a producer of the Royal Guardsman, in the clear blue skies over Germany, roaring in the thunder, uh, Phil Gernhardt. And so uh, he played it, and it used to go like this. I used to live a long time ago. Don't ask me how I know. I just did. And so you can tell the Bellamy's were really stoned that day. But when they got to the hook, I don't like spiders and snakes, and that ain't what it takes to love me. Jim said, I love the hook. Can I rewrite the verses? And so he did. So then later on, when we bought a house out in L.A. to get off the road, um, that's the house I got kicked out of. The Bellamy's lived in the house also. It was on the hill with the cross, on the across from the uh, Hollywood Bowl, and they'd park in front of the house every summer and ruin everything. But the music was nice. And so the Bellamy's uh, lived under the house. I lived under the house, and Jim lived up in the house with the girlfriend that kicked me out. Wow. So let's let's do this. Let's go way, 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 way back. Okay, so take me back to the place you were born what it was like in your family growing up, the economic dynamic, school back then, what you had to deal with, and then just kind of segue into what was the first thing that happened in your life that you look back on that inspired you to want to be in comedy? I never wanted to be in it. I didn't for five years. I let Jim go up there and tell the jokes. I didn't want to do it. But let's go back to you growing up as a boy. What was that like? What was your early childhood like? Well, I was telling my son about this the other day. At one point, when my dad had the skating rink and I was devoted to skating. So your dad owned a skating rink. That was his business. Yeah. He owned a skating rink, and your mom was a stay-at-home mom? At that point. Got it. That was about when I was 15. My dad uh, owned a skating rink. Well, he had a partner who was a pervert and wanted to skate with little girls. We didn't know that then. Now that I look back on my life, I realize he he owned Stay Puff Starch, uh, and uh, he wanted to have a skating rink, and my dad was planning one, and so the two of them got together somehow. My dad thought he was a big deal. You know, oh, they heard about me. And, that you know, the guy was a pervert. He just wanted to skate with little girls. One day at junior high, uh, the teachers came to me, and they said, we're having a, a school program. Do you want to be the MC?" And I thought, well, wow, that's odd. Uh, and then that day, we didn't go to classes for that day. And uh, all the kids were outside on picnic blankets. And I realized I didn't know anybody good enough to sit on their picnic blanket, but I was going to be the center of attention later on that day. And I thought, that is so odd. My life is uh, is extremely odd. I was always the president of my class. Because when I opened my mouth, they could tell I was smart and I'd ask questions or that I usually associated with the teacher. I, I, I liked adults for my friends. I thought all the kids were pretty stupid. And um, so I, I just always succeeded. My brother my, uh, was very smart 
too. He was very hard. And he learned. My dad taught me the times table with his belt. You know, if you don't. He was impatient, and he knew I had this homework, and I had to memorize the times. When I got it wrong, he hit me with the belt. So my brother, who wasn't getting hit, he he learned them, you know, eight times seven, 57. That's real hard with 63. There's a lot of them in there that seem like the same number and all that. It's very hard. So anyway, my, my brother went to the Naval Academy and taught our naval pilots how to fly a jet his whole life. And he's just about 16 months younger than me. He's very well known in the aviation area. as, uh, And he has a master's degree in mathematics. I only took differential equations in three calculus courses. He, he majored in it. Were your parents brilliant? No. I keep looking back at that. My dad was an idiot. <laughs> and my mother was even worse. And he'd make fun of her all the time. He'd say, yes, Garnet. And say it in such a way that you knew she is nuts. They met at a skating rink in Ohio. My dad was uh, lived in Lorraine my, uh, with his mother. His, he didn't have a dad. His dad went somewhere. And, and that's where I got my name is Gallagher. He was a little short guy. I saw a picture of him. There's just one picture of Gallagher. And he was an adagio dancer. And he swept my grandmother off her feet, taught her to rub rose petals on her cheeks to make them red and smoke cigarettes. That's what she said. It was him. But she was a welder during the war, and she blamed the, her cough on the welding. <laughs> one time when she visited my brother on one of the battleships that he was on, she dropped down and looked at the bead on the deck. And my brother says, Grandma, get up, get up. But she's good. She's, she's a perfectionist. I think it's my grandmother that I got. She was the best person I know besides Richard Pryor. I liked her. But my dad was an idiot, um, and mom was too. I can't figure out where I got this. But I loved roller skating, and that's why it was so easy to be a comedian. The hardest thing in the world is jumping up in the air, landing on one foot with rollers on it gracefully to the music. Once they said, uh, you know, all you're going to do is walk out there and tell jokes. I don't fall down. If you do fall down, you might get a laugh. It was easy. And I learned by from roller skating because I had great professionals. I had two of the top people in the whole country came to my dad's rink and, and to teach. They were both national champions, and they were my close friends. And they were five, six, seven years older than me. I was 15. He was 21. And um, they taught me about presentation, body control. I mean, we, I'd have a lesson just on the left hand, just on your left hand. And we'd have to focus on, oh my God. And so when I see these comics who don't know, any, they're not considering anything. When you come out and slouch and lean on the mic stand, your whole act slouches and leans. When uh, Bill Cosby sits, a standing, a stand-up comic can't sit that means the energy level of your, you know what I do? I get on top of my table. The Statue of Liberty knows what she's doing. You've got you, to present the human form. You've got to get on a pedestal and that brings the whole energy up into a pinnacle and a point. I can feel it. When I get off of that, my energy just flows out over 
the stage. And I feel so sorry for these comics that never get up on a pedestal and learn. Because once you're up there and everybody's looking, every little thing that you do, every nuance, every gesture is so much more significant. I love. You have to think about at least four things when you're performing. You have to think about what you've said and how well it's done. You have to think about what's happening in the room that might screw up what you're about to say. And of course, you have to know what now you have to plan of all your routines. What are you going to say next? And then you have to decide what posture am I going to have when I say it? Am I going to use intonation or am I going to use accent when I say it? And that's at least four things going on. And I love it. I love the challenge of thinking of four things at once. I love beating them up. To me, to be a comedian, you have to love the audience enough to m want them to have a good time, but hate them enough to control them. I'm basically saying, you don't know what you're doing. Shut up. Listen to me. And by the way, you're also going to breathe when I tell you, because I believe you actually grab a hold of their diaphragm. That's the best way. You know what irritates me the most? As a slamming door, a dropped beer bottle, anything that interrupts the hypnosis or the the uh, the the control that I'm trying to put over a crowd. That's what irritates me. I've had four heart attacks. And so, you know, everything that people do seems kind of childish and silly to me now. I mean, I don't care about anything. But that one thing still pisses me off. I mean, when, when you die and they wake you up and then they tell you, well, you died and we saved you and you can go ahead. I say to myself, well, God, I've got to go do something significant. I, I'm not going to tell this doctor who just saved my life. Oh, great. There was a couple of episodes of Law and Order I didn't see, and I'm going to lay on my butt and watch them. No, I have to do it. And that's why I came to talk to you. I have so many things on my bucket list. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BarryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. You told me once, now that you've talked about the four heart attacks, you've told me that you consider doctors to be human plumbers. That's correct. Yeah, you, you just you just yeah, yeah, you just told how this person saved, saved your, your life, life. Well, and you're calling plumber. him a human plumber. Well, they are. The only reason he saved my life was he had good little fingers. If you shake hands with your doctor and their big fingers, don't go with that guy. What you want to do is go in his office and see if there's a ship in a bottle. If he can make a ship in a bottle, he's going to be able to clean out your artery. I went to the guy who invented the stent. This is, if you want to know something about me, I go to the problem. I didn't wait 
for the um, draft board to send me a letter. I went to where the draft board was and met the woman that was in charge of letters to me. And I convinced her I was not the kind of guy that needed to go to Vietnam. And she became my draft counselor, told me when she was sending a letter and what I could do to get out of it. I actually put braces on my teeth when I was 22 because any continuing medical thing, they can't uh, draft you. And I got arrested for marijuana, one of the first ones in Tampa. Uh, You can look for uh, my uh, arrest record. I'm sure it's available. And um, I drug it out. I drug it out because they can't draft you while you're undergoing, uh, you know, some kind of juris, jury thing, uh, whatever. So you never had to go to Canada? I considered it, you know. Well, at one point I got arrested. Uh, I did some acid in front of the uh, bar from the USF and uh, end up in the middle of the street. And I remember that a cop came by and uh, put me in the back seat. I thought they were taking me to where my throne was, and I was going to rule the world from then on. I felt so sorry for him not having all the information that I did. I woke up the next day, you know, straight and realized I told them <laughs> where my car was and where the acid was in the car. Lucky for me, a kid had stolen my car. and uh, Karma's a bitch. Uh, Later on, you uh, stole Jim Stafford's car. Uh, I'm telling you, I I just, uh, in my last weekend, I was smoking dope going down the freeway, uh, the 91, uh, going between uh, this valley and going over there to Corona and uh, to Hatchapi. Uh, whatever, and I put it down right as a cop come by. I didn't even see him because I was talking on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) I was talking on the phone, smoking a joint, and the cop come by. Boom! He didn't get me. What a great day. That's fantastic. I, it is because that would have stopped everything. I wouldn't. I couldn't have made the show. I wouldn't have made the money. I had to give the tickets back, and and then I'd have to give extra money to get. It would have been on the news. Gallagher, I thought you had a heart condition. What are you doing, smoking dope? What do you, you know, that kind of thing. Got it. So you, God. so you have a taste of a little bit of a show business emceeing. You're a little bit funny doing some things. But I want <laughs> to be doing a, a scientist. Lot of- I love chemistry and so when you, so when you went to college, physics. your whole goal was I want to be a scientist. I don't want to have anything to do with entertainment. So even though you had the right. bug, right, you still wanted to. So you go through college. But wait, you study here, to once a- again, I can't believe it. I went to the bulletin board. Here's what I did. Everybody else is signing up as a, as a daytime student, and you have to do what an advisor says. I'm not doing that. I'm signing up as a nighttime student because they'll let you do anything you want. So I just take chemistry courses. In a year and a half, I have all the chemistry necessary for a degree. None of them basic studies and English and history and whatever. And so I'm looking on the bulletin board and there's a job and I'm thinking, well, certainly everybody here at this college has called on this. So I call and uh, I go over and uh, he gives me a standardized test. Well, I, my friend who I told you was a genius, who was a professional at my dad's rink, was a doctor of special education. And we went over these tests all the time. I knew all of the type of question. I knew how to set up the, the equations for the answers and every, oh, I, and so I, I took his test and I didn't get the last question. 
So he says to me, um, I'm not giving you this job. You're going to be bored. I said, I'm working now as a waiter in a steakhouse. And he says, but you're going to be bored. And I said, I didn't get the last question right. And he says, most people don't get to the last five questions. Later on in my life, five, six months later, he calls me. He's quitting. Jan C. Uterwick. His dad owns a Uterwick shipping lines in Tampa, and he was proven he could do it on his own. His dad said, I give. You can run the company. So he took him away from uh, the, chemical, uh, the Kaiser Aluminum, and uh, he gave me his job. And now the guy that got my job is my assistant. <laughs> <laughs> and then I get arrested for marijuana. They come in the lab. They're looking everywhere trying to see if I'm making acid and whatever else uh, in there. But I don't like beer. And so I they I never drank with any of the guys from the plant. You know, there was a lot of plant. Uh, there was four labs. I was in charge of all the labs. And there was, you know, like farmers run the labs. And uh, we were making fertilizer. It'll blow up. It's important. And... Um, uh, I, I, they didn't, they didn't think that I cared anything about getting high, you know, cause I would never drank beer with them. I still don't like beer. It stinks. I was just at the comedy store and I wouldn't go inside. I was waiting for Polly to come back and, uh, I wouldn't stand there. I stinks. Just smells bad. I can't. And then when girls drink a beer from a beer bottle, I tell them this just looks terrible. I mean, it just looks, you know, phallic. It looks like a penis. It just looks brown, too. Maybe they're practicing for you. That's what I'm hoping. I'm, oh. I told them that. And these girls, they've everything's gone to shit in this world. And there's no standards. There's no mater D's anywhere. You can wear whatever you want. I just took a flight, and this guy must have been 350 pounds wearing little bitty running uh, shorts. I said, you could meet your maker. This plane could go down. You're going to meet God wearing them shorts. You know, and everybody thought that was strange because I, I talked. Oh, you could meet people. God wearing your outfit. I like it. Okay, just checking. I, I, this is a Gallagher jacket. I had this since 1981. This is what I, I had on You're the You're wearing colors not found in nature. I bought them at the store. Okay, just checking. It's, it's red pants. I don't All know right. why. Red's a good color. Those are not red. Well, the influence is red. It makes people think it's 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 what a manly red. I'm All not right. going to do pink. Okay, I got you. Have you ever worn pink? Oh yeah, I'm not afraid of color. <laughs> I stand. Uh, my manhood is secure. All I'll right. Do what I need. I, to we're going to talk about your manhood. Oh, soon. I've got great fashion ideas. I am designing clothes for bisexuals to wear on the dance floor at gay bars, because I'm sure that only <laughs> half of the time do they want to lead, and the other half of the time they want to follow. And so I have these epaulets that stand up. See, like this. When you get excited by your lover, your epaulet. You, you can say to them, "You don't make me write epithets, but you sure raise my epaulets." And they stand up like this. And then you have a little string here and and your partner goes for that string because if they pull your string boom a silk shoots out the top of your epaulette now the whole time you're dancing you have this little silk coming from this like flagpole on your shoulder they're gonna love that then i'm making shoes that turn into high heels now time out for those of you who don't know what an epaulette is it's that thing that looks like a captain's thing on your shoulder sometimes people wear yeah, those things french all right gay thing i'm sorry keep going Napoleon.
The shoes. Uh, yeah, shoes that turn into high heels. See, I think that every human being should have the option of being three and a half inches taller if they choose. And so you pull it out and it snaps in. I'm talking to uh, mechanics all the time and they're not getting it. I'm just thinking of going over to China if that's where they're going to build them anyway. But um, I got a great name for them, too. It's all about the name Uppities. You're acting uppity. Are you, isn't that fun? And then I have... Uh, what if it's lower? What are they called? Well, just uppity. Okay, just it's, check it. You're uppity. <laughs> well, then you're in your flats. But I, what's my other idea? I've, I've been working on so many. Uh, I can show you pictures. <clears throat> Do you know you can wear a girl's skirt as a shirt? You just slit the sides and pull the zipper down that they usually have in the back. It makes a great shirt. I've got because in the play that I'm writing, it's called The Next Step. It's a it's about uh, dancing with the stars, same sex. Because I'm tired of this where the guy presents the girl and she's the pretty flower. I've seen that, been there, done that. Let's move on. I want to see two guys do a panther dance where they're each in black and they and he and one holds on to the other one's butt. They'll love that. And they pretend to be a cat and do cat-like moves. Once again, my skating is coming in. You see, I'm thinking of that and the costuming that goes with that. Oh, a butterfly. That's what it is. I have a dress that looks like a cocoon, and then you open it up and you're a butterfly because the person that you're dancing with makes you feel like a butterfly. I, you know, when you go to the bowling alley, there's a store where you can buy bowling stuff. When you go to the skating rink, you can go in here and get pom-poms and skate. At a gay bar, there should be a, a store where you can go in there and get things that are fun to have on the dance floor. I go to all the gay bars. They're the fun place to be. I have the greatest time at gay bars. I, uh, I did not know that. Yes. Well, I like to have big fun. I don't like little laughs. I'm sorry to disappoint you here I would never do today. a Jerry Seinfeld thing. <laughs> thing like that. Nobody ever bowls over from watching Jerry Seinfeld and go, oh, stop it, Jerry, stop it. You know, or the guy that wrote those uh, shows either. He doesn't write a, a big joke. I, you, when you're working at a state farm, I mean a state fair, sometimes I'm in the middle of the track. And then they've got folding chairs on the track. And then most of the audience is in a bleacher behind a fence. You want a problem? Work across a track through a fence to mothers with a kid in a stroller. you got to work really fast, 15, 20 minutes. They're out of there. I just want to share something with you, which is I'm a little embarrassed about, okay? I've been managing artists for about 25 years. I consider myself to be, you know, okay i've done a fairly good job as a manager never once in the history of my life as a manager has one of the items on a comedian's bucket list been barry i want to work a state fair across from a rink no i didn't say where, i already know how to do that that's not my bucket list my bucket list is, uh, is wonderful things but I've never had anybody work a state fair. That was never a goal to work a state fair where I'm Boy, working across from pigs. And, That's the job. Just do a theater. No, Why do you have to go to a state kick fair? Out. I'll tell you what you do. You get them a sitcom and a talk show, and, and they sit uh, here in town. They live out in Malibu, and they would never know what Oklahoma and Montana are like. 
But that's their choice. That's what they want. Well, I'm just telling you where the hard job is, where the, where you get. But dirty you didn't have to do the hard job. Everybody's a fake out here. They all get a truck because they want to pretend that they're a trucker, and they got a plastic bed liner because they don't want to scratch on their truck. Trucks are for going to work. They should be dirty. These sissy damn trucks that they got in this town with a back seat. They can't even carry a four by eight sheet of plywood. If you can't carry plywood, you don't have a truck. You have a bastardized piece of shit, and that's the problem with america is we always take a shade of gray we don't want all white or all black we want something in the middle and that's why we got obama because he wasn't a full commitment we said gee it'd be nice to have a black guy for a president but not a whole one and so obama said well vote for me i'm a african and that's then we just round him off to the nearest negro like we always did with tiger woods and that's america and that's the parking lot and that's spoon forks Every time we make something that's supposed to do two things that don't do nothing, and that's the problem. I think I just figured out why you finished 15th in the governor race. Why? Uh, puede ustedes ver por la luz amanecer la que aclamamos con orgullo al pasado anochecer, cuyas rayas, estrellas, que terrible peligrosas sobre las murallas veamos las ondulaban macho mente. Los cohetes brillaron, las bombas explotaron, enseña la señal que nuestra bandera ahí queda, oye, esa estrellada bandera hasta ondulando sobre el Campo del Libre y el equipo de los valientes. Then they run out onto the soccer field. You don't say over the land of the free and the home of the brave, tierra and casa. You say over the field of the brave and the, and the home and the team, equipo. And that, that's what's going on. I just know it. I, Nobody uh, listens to me. We got Spanish people uh, attending the game here in L.A. and Phoenix and Texas and North Carolina. Can I hire you to communicate with my nanny? I know everything. <laughs> I observe. I'm from a other planet. I'm from Venus. So I come to Earth and I look what humans are doing and I find it unusual. And then I comment on it. I'll say, do you know Halloween's not a good idea to let your kids go door to door late at night asking strangers for something to put in their mouth? The perverts think this is wonderful. We're getting home delivery. All we right. just do stupid things and no one's a, a, a pinata. You don't give. Do you have kids? You don't give one a stick and blindfold them. Somebody's going to be crying. This is common sense. <laughs> if later on in life you want to do something serious and everybody knows you're the guy that smashed watermelons, you've kind of screwed up your life. So I had Sledgematic when I was 25 and did it on the Mike Douglas show. Then, I've seen that. Then I became Jim Stafford's road. And if you saw that show, I was wearing a blue jeans jacket with blue jeans. I started the whole thing, you know. What seemed radical to me about the performance that you did was it was close to 15 minutes long, and I don't believe and I could never conceive that any person or talk show host or producer would allow a first-time comedian to do 15 minutes. Well, the way that happened was I got fired from my first... Jim says, um, I told him, Jim, I got this routine, um, you know, about Sledgematic, and he said, well, I'll let you do it in my show. And so, but he wouldn't, he'd let me do it at the end. Everybody's drunk. They've been, he's worked all night. Who wants that crowd? And then he'd let me go up and do it. And um, it what was, was like your first say, job? Uh, in Venice, Florida with Sid Rudeau was my agent. I'd looked in the yellow pages for an agent 
and I saw uh, there was just two. There was one in Tampa and one in St. Pete. So I went over there to St. Pete, and I come in about 11 o'clock, and I knocked on the motel door. It was a big high-rise hotel, but he was staying in one of the motel rooms that was on the beach. And I knocked on the door. He's just waking up. He's just getting up at 11 o'clock, you know. And I said, well, I'll come back. Oh, no, come on in. So I go in the room, and it's got posters everywhere of all kind of musical acts. And he says, "Uh, just go ahead and do your act. I'm going to shave. And so he went in the bathroom, and I put up my little table, and I had my food inside and my hammer in there. In the modern kitchen, there's the standard rule for every kitchen test. And I went on and on with my poem. Then you get out that apple, you place it between the pen, and you reach for the tool, not as light, not as light. It's legendary. Bam! And he leaned over out the door of the bathroom to see if I got Apple all over all his posters, which I did. He's the one who told me, go ahead and do it. And he went and leaned back in there and uh, and continued shaving. I did the routine. And he says, you want to work tonight? I can get you $20. <laughs> You're going to open for the Kim sisters in Harold's uh, Steakhouse in Venice, Florida. I got $20, and he wanted two. He got 10%. <laughs> then he got one job at uh, Quickie's Topless Bar and Pancake House in Newport Ritchie. <laughs> and uh, the first two nights, see, uh, the girls would dance on the stage on a rug. They'd put their naked butt on the rug, and they'd yell out, J7! And they'd hit that song on the jukebox, and the girls would dance. And then they thought it'd be fun to have a comedian. I'd come out and I had three routines. One, I was a grocery basket because my dad had a roller skating rink. And I thought, well, that's funny. I'll have a big wire basket and I'll be, and then I'll take products out of the basket. Rack wrap was one of them. Instead of changing your sheets, you just pull this wrap from the bottom of the bed. And I had um, a soap made out of helium. You just can't drop that soap. And, uh, <laughs> Then I had Sledgematic, and then another one, I was an ironing board, and those were my three uh, routines. Well, the uh, wife showed up on the third night, and she The fi- wife. Right, his what, what wife, you, uh, wife. The club owner, Quickie's wife, okay. showed up. I think that the girls were uh, complaining because I started using their rug. <laughs> Okay. Because I started doing routines on the girls, and they thought it was demeaning. I, I don't know, for whatever. So... I went to, it was Easter weekend, and I knew my dad was on his boat in uh, Port-a-Call, Guy Lombardo's Port-a-Call in St. Pete. So I went there to sulk. It was my second job. To sulk because they fired you? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, and um, so I'm sitting there. Now, I only had these two jobs. I get the Mike Douglas show because I'm sitting on my dad's boat. Along come Alicia Kashi and her husband, Dan Wolf, and they're going to look at the boats because Dan likes boats. So my dad says, you like to come aboard? And so the, he goes down below and looks at the boat and then comes back up because I'm just a sulking on the back. And my dad points at me and said, that's my son. He's trying to be a comedian. He just got fired. And uh, I said, well, dad, it wasn't a good job. It was quickie topless bar and pancake. Was, well, all the <laughs> drunks that are sitting on the back of their boats up and down the wharf, they were listening. They all started laughing. And I started telling him about the story there and uh, about J7 and all that. He said, I'm going to get you on the Mike Douglas show. You just tell that story. And I said, but, Dan, I've got this routine where I smash the food with the ha- Oh, no, just tell this story about quickie topless bar and pancake house. 
And so uh, I went and told Jim. I said, Jim, I believe I'm going to be on the Mike Douglas show. I just met this guy, Dan Wolf, and he said he'll get me on there. And uh, Jim said, well, you better practice. And so then he let me practice during his show because I was going to do Sledge Matter. We weren't going to do that story about the topless dancers. And so um, I got on, and Jim knew it. Jim knew I was a chemist, and I had I got you know two little jobs, and then I'm on the Mike Douglas show. And I took the check, and I bought a bus ticket to L.A. I figured, well, after Mike Douglas, you do the Tonight Show. So I go in there. Craig Tennis with the, was the talent coordinator the night I tried out. It was George Miller, me. The late George Miller. And um, uh, the guy with the arrow to his head. Uh, Steve Martin. Steve Martin got the shot. Me and George didn't. And so that was that. And uh, I got a job in a car wash out by <laughs> Disneyland. And uh, until the friend that I was living with, a skater that I knew, he got tired of me. Well, he was a homosexual and his girl and his boyfriend didn't like me being there. So they got me drunk and put me on a bus and uh, sent me to Vegas. He said, you need to be in Vegas. And I only had $20. I hit Vegas with my little box with my hammer in it and $20. And I walked up and down the strip. I sold that joke I wrote for Jim to the worst comedian. That's who you look for, not the best. You look for the worst comic. He was working at the International Hotel. Why? Because he knew the CEO who used to be a chef at this hotel in New Orleans you see, and uh, his job was to go on between family groups. At the time, that was what was happening, Osmond-type acts. And so I sold him a couple of Jim's jokes. But he didn't even pay uh, with that for that with money. He'd take me to lunch because he could eat for free in there. So I, I'd get lunch. I got a job. He got me a job in that hotel in the Bavarian room as a busboy. So I got to see Elvis because Elvis worked there. So then I got to see... Uh, the opening act for Elvis, Jackie Kahane. I wrote his whole act down with a kino crayon on the kino ticket. I looked at that and I said to myself, if I just have this, all I need is this. I could earn a living. He's opening for Elvis. And all he'd do is back into the mic and say, excuse me. And he put his hand out and say, if it's raining here, why do people put their hand out and see if it's raining? He'd say, if it's raining here, he points to the top of his head and it's raining there. You know, and those kind of things. Joe, I remember some of the jokes he said. His, his daughter called him and said, I had an accident with the car. And dad, and he says, what shape is the car? And she said, it's a triangle. <laughs> that was a big, <laughs> big laugh back then. You have to remember, you, in the old days, you could just say tush. You couldn't say ass or butt. And you couldn't say, you had to say booby. You know, the the Tonight Show censors and all of them, they didn't want you to try anything back then. It's been a slow change over the decades as to what you can say. Because you got to keep up with that because you have to push the envelope. The comedian has to, you know, do a little bit you're not supposed to do. All right. So we're just going to put a pin in that. So let's go to Vegas. You take your money, your $20, you get to Vegas. What happens? Well, the first thing I work at the uh, Rocket Cafe downtown, and I live for $20.50 with the dishwashers, and we just have a bedroom. We don't have a bathroom. But I meet this magician, who I mean uh, ventriloquist, who is the worst ventriloquist in the world. His dummies are so 
ugly. And I say to him, why are your dummies so ugly? Well, I carved them in Africa. One day I put my, my dummies down the case and someone took it away and I had to carve these in a day. And I said, but another day has come by. Let's fix these dummies. They're so horrid. He had, he had big gashes in them so they could be seen at a distance. And one of them, the woman... Uh, he did it act also in uh, in Japanese, and the one the woman's breast would be shown uh, because she was wearing a strapless thing. He had a little button he pulled, and then her her boob popped out, and uh, it, he was terrible. But I liked. Uh, he showed me how to make dummies, and so I I made a pretty one, and I put it on the back of my head. And then I put a body for that dummy that was standing on my butt. And I thought, I can do a ventriloquist act. If the, if the dummy's on my back, they never see my lips. I don't have to learn <laughs> to do like that. And so you can probably see that I used it on some of my shows. I had a really cute face on the back of my head. Um, I would start off with an idea, and it wouldn't work out. And then you just use it for something else. But I learned that from him. And uh, he he worked around uh, the middle uh, Asia during the Vietnam crisis, Vietnam War, and and you know kicked back and all that and made millions uh, working for USO things like that. And so, what's the next step after you Jim start Stafford working? comes out to Vegas, and I introduce him to all the comedians that I know, and I introduced him to that ventriloquist and these other. Peter Anthony, he is a terrible comic, but he had worked for six hours over at the Bonanza, and uh, and 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 his his closer was hello, golly, this is Lewis, and he'd play his trumpet. But anyway, uh, Jim says these people are all terrible. Come back and work with me, and so I did. I went back with Jim. And you worked as his road manager, or as an opening act, or both. Well, it's everything. I had to. He didn't like doing anything. When the phone would ring, he'd glare at it. So you were kind of like his manager, too. Oh, yeah. None of his uh, pants had pockets on stage. So, I mean, he never... Well, he couldn't carry money. He couldn't... And he had show clothes all the time. Now, he's looking at me right before the show, and he's doing his hands around. I know he doesn't have any pockets. What are you looking for? He's looking for a guitar pick. It just occurred to him that he needs a pick for his guitar. I have him in my... When I finally quit working with him, I said to myself, God almighty, I don't have to ever have a guitar pick in my pocket anymore. But I know a lot about guitar. How do you decide to end that relationship, and then what's the next thing for you? Well, he uh, kicked me out. The people that he had around him uh, said, you got to get rid of Gallagher because they think he's the magic. So he gets rid of me. Then they don't have any scripts. Then they call me. But I learned to tap dance because um, I, I could roller skate. I said, I'm going to be the tap dancing comedian. And every time I need to move from one part of the stage to another, I'll tap over there. So I went to three different schools, Roland Dupree, Louis Dupron, and Paul DeRolf. And that's all I did was tap dancing classes uh, for about uh, three months, and I learned to tap dance. But the, for some unknown reason, uh, some guys in the class said, we have a show called Pop Your Buttons at uh, Knott's Berry Farm. Do you want to be the star? Because I had a circus tent that popped out of a suitcase. I had Gallagher's Suitcase Circus. Wait a second. Stop. You were working with Jim Stafford for five years. You didn't have a pop-up circus thing. Where well, did this come from? When I, when I bought a house for him on the hill with the cross from, near the Hollywood Bowl, 
Uh, that was when I could start to work on my act. And that was your pop-up sledgematic was your first routine you worked on. Well, I already had that routine for five years. That's why I knew I needed a background for it. And then I added more jokes. I had a little rabbit that popped out of a hat. It was so cute. But you can find it on the Internet. Oh, what was great was the long comes make me laugh at a time when I had I was loaded for bear. I had so many little routines, little hats with special things in them. So for those of you who have been under a rock in terms of a show that's actually been syndicated and gone on the air three different times in 30 years, is a very simple concept. They bring somebody from the audience or a contestant. The contestant has their back with a chair to the audience. The comedian comes out and has a certain short amount of time to make them laugh. If their mouth opens at any time, they lose. Right. That was should have been the name of the of the show was Break My Face because that was the deal. You're supposed to break their countenance. So I had a hat, a bowler hat with two tubes. One of them, I had a fake rat on a string, and I could pull it, and it would shoot out. The other one, I put a real rat. And But I only tied him so he couldn't get further than just the front. So they could see there was a real rat in the one hole. Then I pulled the string on the other one. It flew out in the air, and they'd scream when. Then I had a, 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 a squirt gun, and the water came out of the back of the squirt gun when I pulled the trigger, and it squirted me in the face. Win every time. Then I put a wiener in a banana peel, put that in my pants. Every time pulled. In fact, I used it in Oklahoma the other night, last night. <laughs> you take the banana out of your pants and they laugh a little bit and then you peel it and there's a wiener inside. They <laughs> die. I think every comedian should have some kind of uh, wiener banana in his pants for when he needs it. Hey, let me tell you what else I've innovated for in comedy. I have put a wood block <laughs> and a cymbal and a cowbell on a mic stand. And I bang. I I don't do rim shops with a uh, snare drum, but I use a cowbell and a cymbal, and it works great. Every comic should have these things to help. But I bump with the, the cover. It gets everybody back in sync because some of them laugh short, and you have to make noise until they all catch up. Okay, so I'm just trying to figure out how you get to the point where you realize. I'm never going to have another job job again. From this point forward, I am a comedian. I'm never going to do anything again wow. but this. What was the moment that happened when you realized oh, that? No, it happened two or three times. One time, I my sister uh, always lived with guys who owned bars, and uh, and they always needed carpentry work, and I'm pretty good. And so she called me and she said, you want to redo the inside of this bar? It'll take about a month. And I said, no. I said, if I'm going to be unemployed, I'm going to be unemployed comedian and just focus on this. Lucky for me, I get a call from Barry Lee, this Australian comedian. And he says, I've got two jobs in Vegas. You can have one of them. Well, the one he gave me was a stupid job at the Marina Hotel, which wasn't even on the strip. It was behind a gas station. He actually had to go past the gas pumps, and it was full of just airline people. 
And I worked in, uh, I had to do uh, half an hour. Then the girl singer did a half an hour. And then we were off a half an hour. And then I did a half hour, girl singer, half hour, off a half hour. And we do that four times a night. I lost the money. I worked there six weeks in Vegas and was broke. I came back and I told Jim, I said, I don't think I'm going to make it. Jim says, well, go out on the road with me again. So I went with him to a couple of shows, and then I saw him work. I realized I'm better than that. And so I went back and somehow got it rolling again. But there were several times when I was going to quit because it's just hard. Talk about the times that made you want to quit. Well, that time that I was doing that uh, routine with the stuff in my hat, I had to save the gas money to get from my little house in Burbank over to NBC and back again and then got, you know, negated twice and, and shown the door. When Bob Hope bumped right, you. Right, Bob bumped me. He was a terrible comedian. He was just terrible. Uh, I did a couple specials with him, too. And they'd always say, I said, this is a terrible. Why would you do a special with somebody you thought was terrible? Well, uh, I guess it was the money. Um, money but, make five hundred and thirty-five dollars and forty. Oh no, those specials paid a lot. I was in a couple of his specials. The the the, the uh, writers loved me, but they were terrible. I'd say this is a terrible joke, and they said, "Leave it alone, Gallagher. They'll be crying in Omaha. You know, it's gonna kill in Des Moines." And so, yeah, I don't. I guess. So, I, what was the thing that you did that you <coughs> noticed helped propel you? to a level where you didn't have to worry about gas money anymore. Something had to happen. What was it? What was the turning point? Well, I realized that Kenny Rogers didn't show up till after the intermission. And I said to Dottie West, I said, Dottie, you don't want me to go after you. I mean, before you, and then you'll have to walk in the watermelon. Why don't I just go out and round them up for you? Then I'll give them to you at about 8.10. I'll go out at a quarter to. So I'll do 25 minutes. And as soon as they're all seated and ready to go, I'll turn them over to you. Then when you exit, I'll pop back up in the spotlight and I'll do the sledgematic. Then then we went to halftime and Kenny'd show up because he didn't want to be there at his own show. He just wanted to do the least amount possible and be there. In fact, he didn't want to ride in his own traffic from the airport to his gig. He wanted a helicopter to pick him up. He was always talking about getting the depreciation on the helicopter. So um, I did a real good job of that. In fact, uh, Dottie <laughs> said, you have to stop introducing me so good. I was who's afraid. Dot, I'm sorry, who's Dottie again? Dottie West was Kenny Rogers' real opening act. I was just And Dottie West MC. was a country and western singer? Yeah. Okay. And she'd sing with him all the time. Got it. Oh, Did she it, so was you, uh, another of Ken Cragen's uh, acts. Explain who Ken Cragen was to our audience. But he was Kenny Rogers' manager, and he also managed me and Dottie. Lionel Richie he did, and I think Rich Little, he, he man. I gave him a couple. I gave him uh, the guy that was the judge on Night Court. Uh, Harry Anderson. Hair, I gave him Harry Anderson, and um, I, I don't know. I, I, I thought I helped him, but I was only there a year. And then now, I, now he but, only started managing you because he got you the gig opening for Kenny Rogers, and he figured I'll, Kenny I'll, I'll, I'll double dip and I'll take the, the money. And yeah, he took twenty percent. He got a hundred thousand because I didn't have an agent. He said, "You don't have an agent." <laughs> so he took twenty percent from you. 
And you didn't see anything wrong with that. Uh, No, I got 400,000. That was pretty good. But and during that time, I made two specials for Showtime, so I was off and running. So that's that. so. Wh- I got a lot of confidence doing that with with uh, Dottie West and those big crowds. Oh. I was in the John F. Kennedy Center. This is a big deal. Okay, so that's the moment when you knew uh, shit was changing when you were opening for Kenny Rogers. You got to know somebody. I guess that's the deal. You got yeah. It was a contact. I but who other, gave you the shot? At, where did they see you to give you the shot the, to open for a hundred M- shows? With their, you know what I mean. So they see you on Merv. I know. And Kenny's uh, wife didn't like me. Mm. Kenny would tell me the not thing. her favorite. She likes the, with the arrow through his head. She's Steve. You sound, kind of sound like a little bit like Mitzi Shore and Louie Anderson together when you yeah, do that. I, oh, I do. I do Mitzi really good. Gallagher. Oh, and let me tell you what happened. I I used to just threaten to have a watermelon. I I didn't have a watermelon. It was just a line in my show. I'd say, I may or may not have the watermelon. That depends upon your reaction to the rest of my show. Well, one time I was supposed to work on New Year's Eve over at the new club that she had near uh, UCLA. And so I went there early to miss the traffic. Now I'm just standing around. I got nothing to do. And there's a grocery store. And I thought, devilishly, I'll go down and get a watermelon. And then I was surprised to notice it fit in my suitcase because uh, you have to be able to go up to the stage with your props. You can't leave them on the stage because somebody else is up there before you and somebody's going to be after you. And so I, I was amazed I could take it up there with me. Well, we were drinking. It was New Year's Eve, and I went ahead and smashed it because it was a concrete floor, and uh, and I knew the guy that cleaned up. It was like the comedian that used to hit a beer in his forehead. I'll think of his name in a little while. He was huge. He died being huge um and and uh so i knew he was going to clean because he was living in a van outside the wall there (laughs) he's sleeping in that van and uh, so i smacked that watermelon the next day was a monday and mitzi called me gallagher are you gonna smash a watermelon again i said no mitzi i just did that to one because i knew what she's gonna say but I was wrong. She said, well, you better. We're sold out two shows. That's the moment in which I realized this is this is working. You know, I'm sold out smacking this watermelon. And that's what I had to do. So every night after that was New Year's Eve, basically. Awesome. And I did it wrong. You should cut them in thirds. You shouldn't hit the whole melon. I My hammer now is half the weight of the other one. I, I, in fact, I found my other one, and I was amazed that I ever swung this thing over my head. It must weigh twenty pounds. I'm just working with it like seven now. And, and I don't know. I got it wrong. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.